Hello, my name is Tina Marshall and this is Precision Neuroscience Reimagined. I'm joined here today by Simon Pillinger. Um, today does have slightly an equipia focus because Simon is our Head of Governance, Patient Participation and Involvement and Ethics. Today we really want to dig into the importance of um, patients participating in research um, and how can we really protect patients. So for me, I'm going to be coming at this from a patient's perspective as I really grill Simon to understand the differences between de-identification, anonymization, and how can we as a community working in precision neuroscience for life sciences, how can we all help um, mitigate and change the trajectory of research so that we can essentially drive more income into the UK as a whole. Simon, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you giving up your time for this um, important discussion. Very happy to be here. Brilliant. So my first question to you is, what first brought you actually into information governance? If you can give me a little bit of background history into yourself. Yeah, so I started working in the NHS um, in about 2014. So I went in, started working actually in patient experience. Um, and that was at Oxford University Hospitals, and then went to work in the patient advice and liaison team. So I was leading that team uh, and also did some work in the formal complaint side of things as well. Um, and then uh, a gap came up for um, a lovely chap called Tom Mansfield um, was leaving and he and his boss Nula put their heads together and thought, well, who, who, do, we, who do we know who might fill this or might be good at this? And they, they both came up with me, um, which is very humbling. Uh, I then went into that role um, and that was kind of my entry point into, into information governance. And then that led me into uh, the pre preparatory work for the GDPR when it came in. Uh, and then working in health and social care ever since, really. That was very interesting. One of the reasons I really always enjoy like speaking to Simon, actually, is um, so for me, of course, my background is quite varied. Um, you know, dancer and I work in the commercial world. And for me, information governance always seems as though it's quite a dry topic. Um, so Simon, you're not that way at all when it comes to information governance. How, how do you find, how are you so passionate about the topic? It's so, so Personal data permeates everything, right? It's in every kind of aspect of our lives. So although I, I specialise in kind of information governance and data protection and, and bits of law, actually I'm then, it's a nexus, it's a confluence for every other bit. So it means that I get to dip into bits of, of, of uh, employment law, it means I get to dip into bits of kind of health research law. It, it's, it's a whole kind of gateway for generalising in a whole load of different areas. Um, and it's really interesting because it's helping us understand how our rights are upheld and how we protect our, our rights. From and for me, that, that kind of probably stems from a slightly philosophical interest, um, but actually looking at then how that applies in the real world, which is not something, um, well, you know, philosophy has tried to do that for a very long time, but it's where philosophy about rights of individuals meets the legal application. Now, that's a, just a really fascinating area to work in. I'm really keen to dig into that, actually, if mm. we were to look at this from a patient perspective. Yeah. Um, so for me as a patient, oh, goodness me, I can't remember. I think it was like two or three years ago, some mm. information came out regarding uh, organisations selling patient data and patient data needing to be collected. Yes. What was that all about? So sell is a really interesting word. Um, and the NHS provides, well, as a national level, so we have something called the Data Access Request Service that allows organisations to request data sets. That comes with a fee. 
Um, so there are a couple of different things it might refer to. But in terms of when we think about selling something... But what is that data? The NHS England will collect and NHS Digital will collect data sets for various things. So there's a mental health data set that's collected. There's information around kind of hospital statistics. So how many people are going into A&E. And a lot of these data sets are required to be collected. So NHS Trust have provided this data to a national uh, organisation like NHS England. Um, and that helps for a whole load of reasons. It gives... Um, because the NHS is a collection, uh, almost like a federation of organisations, so there is no single kind of NHS organisation that operates every single trust. You have different organisations, different local NHS trusts covering acute, so physical health, um, covering community services, covering mental health services. And then there's also primary care, which is, you know, you'll have um, groups of general practices working together. You'll also have individual general practices working together. So it's a big federation of different organisations. There needs to be a level of kind of understanding of what's happening at a national level to enable national policy to be made and to understand where the problems are. Because we don't have that, um, it makes it very difficult to plan for the future. And we've seen in the COVID pandemic just how important having that national perspective is. And so that's the reason these data sets are collected, um, is to help kind of national planning. Um, but these the, the data access request service is actually by and large used by other public authorities to help with planning. So, for example, if you are a local authority with responsibility for social care planning, so residential social care, there's a, a really useful need for you to know, you know how many patients are being discharged of a certain age so that you can help fund care home places and care packages to ensure, you know, and looking at is it easy, you know, we know it's cheaper and, and more cost effective and people want to stay in their homes for as long as possible. So they can use that data to help them plan that. And that keeps costs down, it's better for the public person, it's usually better for people as well. So there's a whole load of different ways in which that data can be used for public good. And that's both public in kind of the general popular sense, but also in for individual benefit as well. Um, but when we talk about selling data, it's not the same as if I go into DFS and buy a sofa. It's not a piece of property that I own, own like a sofa is. So there's a contract that uh, NHS England have with their providers, and a license is probably a better way of thinking about it. Um, so and the, the application process is really rigorous for it, um, and it has to be used for a specific purpose. So if you want access to that data, you've got to make a really strong use case. And like I say, if you um, and the NHS publishes lists of uh, basically what the proposals are, you can go into the meat of this. You can really look as to uh, you know, why public authorities or any other organisation is looking at this data. You can look at whether that's being used for commercial purposes. Uh, I see what you're saying. Mm. What, what kind of data? So let's just say if I go to hospital yeah. um, for anything or somebody looks at my medical record. Yeah. Um, and my, re my medical record will obviously have my name, my address, my date of birth. It will have the history of my medications, any diagnosis that I've had, yeah. um, and it will have that personal information. I don't want random people having access to that personal information. Everyone who has access to that information will have been through some fairly rigorous training. So, for example, if you're considering the, the staff who are providing you with direct care at that hospital, they have to be have information going to training every year, along with a whole load of other training around kind of how to use systems in the hospital, how to access information safely. There are multi-factor authentication systems to ensure that access is only uh, given to people who need to access that information. Um, and 
all NHS organisations are bound by the Caldecott principles. So these are principles that were brought in in about 1997-98, uh, following a report by the, the late Dame Fiona Caldecott. And essentially, these are designed to be rules that clinicians can use to ensure the confidential patient information is used in an appropriate way. So things like make sure that you can justify what you're accessing, accessing it for uh, you know as little information as necessary. Um, so that's at the hospital level. And then at the national level, once this information comes through to a national level. And they say I'm fine with the hospital level because yeah, that's so you, going so to absolutely impact my direct patient care. So that's, that's all good. Yeah. So at a national level, you're not going to have nearly as much information coming through as is in your patient record. So this is all structured information. What we mean by that is it's not free text. So it's not your doctor is writing on a, a piece of paper. It's things like your diagnosis. It might be information about um, how long you've taken to get to treatment. And that's important for um, understanding how uh, quickly patients are being seen. Yeah, how so they're... this is the wait time. So it's yeah, talking about. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, it will also contain potentially other information about medications that you've been taking, um, and that's really useful in terms of understanding what medications are effective, making sure that in future patients can be given the best uh, treatments as quickly as possible. So you're not putting patients on the wrong drug and you know uh, speeding up treatment. Um, but it will also contain other bits of information. Um, around, you know, I've done off the top of my head actually, um, but yeah, so the information is then collected and the ways it can be accessed in terms of by third parties are different, so predominantly the organ, you know, the NHS wants to give as little personal data as possible and as little directly identifiable data as possible um, and actually if it can it will give only anonymous data or anonymized data. Before we dig into what the NHS give, um, could you help me understand the difference between de-identified and anonymised? Because yes. that comes up a lot and there are differences, but they, it seems as though they're nuanced differences. Yes. So most people will be sceptical when someone says anonymous or anonymised, and they're, they're probably right to be a little bit sceptical. Um, personal data is defined in law, and this has been around for a very long time now, uh, as data which is um, relates to a living individual and it's either directly or indirectly uh, identifiable from data. So that might be a single piece of data that identifies somebody. So Simon Pillinger, born in whenever, lives at this address. That's me. It's unequivocally me. Um, but it might just be this person lives in Banbury, which is where I live. Um, and that, that actually relates to an awful lot of people. So you might need other information to then couple with that to relate that information to an individual. Um, but that's still personal data. When we talk about de-identified or pseudonymized data, we're talking about data where you would need other information in order to relate it back to that individual. So would it be like um, yeah, so pseudonymized ex- data to relate it back to an individual? So could it be my address and the fact that I'm a female? Yeah, I mean, to give a, give a really good example is that if you go into, say, a sexual health clinic, they will often you know, allow patients to work on pseudonyms. So you obviously don't want your name called out in a clinic saying like, oh, Simon Pillinger, yeah, this is the, uh, the gonorrhea clinic. Um, so you might have something like, um, oh yeah, can Mickey Mouse come and I'll, I'll, but I'm Mickey Mouse, that's my pseudonym. I know I'm me, they know I'm me, but no one else in the clinic is able to know who I am. Um, so if we change an NHS number on a record to um, you know, an artificial identifier, that's part of it. There's a whole range of scope depending what kind of field you're and that's the de-identified part. Yeah. If we think about personal data as a scale, so on one end of that scale, you've got 
absolutely personal data. There is no shadow of a doubt that data relates to an individual. Um, and on the other side of that scale, we have anonymous data. So that's data that could not, in a month or some days, be used to relate to an individual. And along that scale, we have de-identified and pseudonymous data where it's still personal data, but it's much harder to identify. You'd need um, more resources. You might need a special key in order to do that. So um, hashing algorithms might be used in order to protect that. But if you've got the hashing key and you know all the inputs, you'd be able to sometimes repeat that process depending on how you've done it. And then further along that, you've got anonymous data. And the Information Commissioner's Office have started kind of calling this effectively anonymous data. Um, and so anonymous data, completely anonymous, might be statistical aggregated information or information that's never related to personal data anyway. So if I you know, type them onto my computer and put down the numbers 45679, that's just random. It and that's mean now anything. effectively anonymous. That's, that's, that's different. Anonymous. That's so, completely anonymous. So whereas effectively anonymous or anonymized is information that was personal data, which you put through so many processes that it's effectively anonymous. So mm -hmm. you would need a disproportionate level of resources and time and knowledge. Um, and there's a couple of tests in law um, in kind of the, the, the weeds of the GDPR that talk about what are the resources you would need? What's the reasonable likelihood that you'd be able to identify individuals from this data? Um, and that's looking at kind of the time and resources, the specialist knowledge. Um, as a general rule of thumb, I talk about the James Bond villain rule, which is if you need the resources of a James Bond villain to identify data from that, uh, from that uh, an individual from that data set, is probably anonymous. If you need nation-state levels of resourcing in order to identify people, it's probably anonymous. Anonymity doesn't require an impossibility. It requires that it's beyond the reasonable likelihood. So it's really important that anyone who makes the claim that data is anonymous has assessed it. So consider those factors, um, and that can include things like where it's held, the environments it's in, the, the processes it's been through to get that data to that state. There are lots of instances where people have published papers on uh, data sets uh, that have claimed to be anonymous and have found those identifiable. Um, and there tends to be kind of two um, dominating um, characters of those, those papers. One, they are, tend to be published by people who have nothing else to do than that. They are purposely trying to find the identifiability. That's not representative generally of the population at large. And the second part is they're published data sets. So as soon as you publish a data set at row-level data, you are increasing exponentially your likelihood of re-identification because everyone can access it. Whereas if you've got it in, say, a secure data environment and you're controlling access very um, uh, assiduously, the chances are obviously much, much lower. Would my data from the NHS go into a secure data environment? This is a really, really good question, and we're still seeing the development of this. We're still seeing the policies being um, configured. So at the moment, um, we had Ben Goldacre's review back earlier this year of trusted research environments. Um, and this builds on work that's been going on for a couple of years around, um, really built on the, the Office for National Statistics, who kind of kick-started this um, back, I think, in the, in the mid-2000s with, with the, the five safe principles. Um, which we need to come back to because I can't remember off the top of my head. But by and large, this is about making sure that the right people have access to the right data in the right environment and that technical controls can be given in order to make sure that what people say they're going to do is actually what they're mm -hmm. doing. 
who determines um, who can access my data? Who determines the right person, who that right person is who can access my data? So in the case of you know, data access request service, which is probably one of the better known areas, they have an entire access um, uh, protocol and system for people to work through. So there's, uh, you know, this goes through governance review from people like myself, who are specialists in information governance and data protection. It might need uh, oversight from what's called the, the confidentiality. It might need some input from the confidentiality advisory group. So data protection is um, based on data protection law. There's also the common duty of confidentiality, which comes out of common law. This is the sort of law that is not created by acts of parliament, it's created through um, judicial precedent. Um, and confidentiality is a relatively um, well-known and quite an old common law. Um, so where you're using confidential patient information um, for purposes beyond direct care, or you want to put confidentiality aside, and there are sometimes really good reasons for doing this, um, like the National Cancer Registry is a really good example, um, then they will advise about whether that is proportional or not. So mm -hmm. they've got, a, they've got a, but the onus is on the applicant to access that data to demonstrate that there is a uh, public benefit to that, that there is a, a really good rationale. Um, data is not just given to anyone that wants it. Okay, the NHS have access to my data. They can yep. use my data for clinical purposes um, and they can use it for for planning and, and improvements. Um, now I'm a patient, what's a pharma company going to do with my data? And why, why should they have my data? So let, let's start with the first one. Yeah. What's a pharma company going to do with my data? So there's an old joke in data protection, which the answer is always, it depends. Um, but it does depend. So if a, a pharma company is acting as a sponsor to a clinical trial, they are almost uh, very often what's called the, the, the controller of that data. And that basically means that they are determining the means and purposes for how it's used. Uh, so they will often engage with recruitment sites, these might be NHS trusts, who will act on their behalf. Um, and very often, I mean, what we've seen in, is that they will help the, the pharmacology, the pharma company recruit that patient. Um, and these are studies that go through um, the health uh, research authorities, the HRAs, um, research ethics committees, the RECs, loads of acronyms in this landscape. Once that study has been approved by that ethics committee, they will pick it apart and go, yeah, no, you need to change this bit, or actually we're happy with how this is working. Um, only at that point do the pharma companies start to engage with those NHS sites. And they might not be NHS sites, they might be other healthcare organisations, but part of the patient information will often include the a consent for linking of records so that the pharma, pharma companies are able to link up the information they're collecting as part of that trial with that patient's records. Often that's linked with kind of uh, safety monitoring, so making sure, you know, if you're doing a drug with someone that you're not having adverse reactions, um, or if you are having adverse reactions, that you're able to monitor and deal with them and report on them. Um, and that kind of flows into the responsibilities that pharma companies have under um, uh, healthcare medicine and healthcare products regulatory agency in terms of making sure they're not kind of killing people, which would be bad. Um, that wouldn't be good at all. No. You know, I know during COVID there was public concern mm. around the contact tracing app. Yeah. Um, and that caused a lot of concern around data being shared. Yeah. What's being done to mitigate that? I mean, I, as a patient, I'm just concerned. I just, I, I, could somebody track me? Actually, the contact tracing app is a really good example of um, 
data protection done well. So there's this concept called uh, privacy by design default, um, which was uh, coined by a wonderful lady called Dr. Anne Kavukian. You build it into your product. So whatever you're making, if it's using personal data, you don't make data protection an add-on, you build it as in the foundation. And actually that makes generally easier to develop the product. It's really good from a kind of business analytics and making sure you're getting things right. But it also means you're not bolting it on later. So your product is designed with that at heart. And the contract tracing app is a really good example of when you can do this well. And the idea is actually that rather than collecting that information centrally, um, what you do is your phone has a conversation, it's spouting out random bits of, of text. And um, what it's also doing is receiving bits of text from other people. So rather than everything being collated in one big data set, um, what it's actually doing is you're then able to, of your own volition, share the bits of code that your phone has received. If the other person does the same, that central database goes, oh, hold on, these two people have been near each other. So if you're, because they can measure the length of time and the contact. So rather, so it's not tracking what you've been, it's not tracking what you've done, it's just measuring one single thing and that's your proximity. Okay, so it's, it's just, yeah, essentially measuring proximity yeah. from me to another person that could have tested positive for COVID Absolutely. at the time. That's very interesting. And it kind of does debunk a little bit around information governance and some of the issues that the public have with the concerns of that. I do want to touch on the, the patient participation yeah. involvement work that you have um, and really understand more from their perspective for what industry organisations and the NHS can do to help with clinical trials. I do think that COVID helped vastly with that. I think there's a greater understanding now of clinical trials. Um, you know, but we do also see a lot of things in the world going back to the way they were before COVID. Yeah. Um, and arguably the patient participation and involvement in clinical trials is something that we need to keep. So Very how do we so. do that? I mean, from your work with your group, what I, are their thoughts? I think one of the things that, that we've, we've seen is that public understanding of how your medicine gets from the lab to the little bottle you take home from the pharmacy is not particularly well known. And that is, yeah, before I started working in Acrivia, I was probably in that state where I didn't want to go and research an entire ecosystem. Um, so I think there's knownness of organisations working in pharma to do more to educate the public about how medicines are developed. Um, in the same way that I think it's good for people to understand how the burger on their plate gets from the farmyard through all those processes to where we are. Because ultimately, we were putting both of those things in our bodies. Um, I think we need to sort of understand that. I think once we start, I mean, certainly from my own journey into understanding the pharma pharmaceutical industry, um, having come from the NHS side of things, having worked with patients before and kind of come full circle, it's, it's really kind of been very powerful to actually see these are all the steps. Um, there's an awful lot of, of regulation that, that organisations have to go through. Um, and I think the rate of failure is astonishing. I think actually that's one of the things that, that people, that, that the general public doesn't necessarily... I think understand. it's around 90%. I think that there is... Um... And could you imagine if that was an airline? You wouldn't get on an airplane with a 10% chance yeah. of survival. No, no. And I think that, that um, drug failure through the clinical trial process, I think it's higher than actually sending a man to the moon. I think, it's, yeah. I think it is higher than rocket science. And I think there's a public perception of, 
oh, pharma, pharmaceutical organizations are big fat cats and they're making loads of money out of people's suffering. But I think the problem is what we only ever see is the, the prices of drugs that succeed, which has to, because it costs money to develop these drugs. To mitigate the cost, the cost of the drugs that failed. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So why don't we say that more often, I think, is probably, probably the thing. We, we probably do. I think we've got to get better as an industry in communicating with patients. And I think... It's almost as though we're scared of telling patients how much it all costs and letting them know that actually there are financials involved in this. I think so. I think we kind of... I do wonder if it's because we have a national health service which is free at the point of entry, mm -hmm. where actually we, we kind of don't want to face that reality, maybe. But I think as we engage with that, we, we should. And we have to understand, you know, we have, the, we have NICE, the, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, who advises on what drugs are cost effective. Mm -hmm. um, so we do understand that. But I think it's, we have to engage with that very honestly and openly um, as individuals, as members of the public, as, as people working in that industry, to be able to say, this costs money. We have to understand at a national level that we can't, you know, we have to pay for things. Absolutely. Things cost money. Absolutely. Um, and trials is absolutely key to be able to get to be able to get even one drug to market for somebody that's really suffering will make such a huge difference. Yeah, absolutely. And what we see then is that costs do come down. So that once we've got that drug developed, mm -hmm. actually, you know, developing that in some ways the hard part, then we can start to refine that. We mm -hmm. actually realize, oh, this drug can be used for other purposes as well. Um, you know, how many drugs have there been that we, we you know, are used for more than a single purpose? Mm -hmm. That's very true, actually. Um, I think we see an awful lot more off-label use than you would anticipate mm. that then can lead to a clinical trial. Yes. The patient involvement in, mm. um, in clinical trials, I think, is something, as we've spoken about, it's been phenomenally underestimated. Yes. But we know it's also one of the biggest challenges that we have in drug development is actually getting yep. patients to be involved in clinical trials and understanding the importance of them without them thinking that they're selling their soul yeah. or their data or themselves or their background to big pharma, um, yeah. as it's called. We need to accelerate this. I, you know, I think the industry, life sciences industry as a whole, absolutely yeah. has to accelerate this because we have to continue to evolve. Um, one of the things that really does worry me and keeps me up at night, um, mm. particularly at the moment when we're looking at the number of people who are suffering, um, whether it's through cancer or through mental health, bipolar, schizophrenia. Yeah. We know that there are lots of really good treatments out there, but we know that many of them are only effective for a short period of time. And then the patient mm. ends up going onto a cycle of the medication working, the medication doesn't work, then the medication will work, and the medication won't work. Um, so we have to do better. Yep. We have to understand these patients, but to do that, we have to bring the patients in for clinical trials. Um, as the life sciences ecosystem, from your experience in working with patients, what can the ecosystem do to help this? I think one of the key things that we are much, much better positioned to do is um, be more transparent about how the data is used. And the reason I say that, in, in uh, old-fashioned data dissemination models where, you know, you give someone a data set or, you know, you do this, that, the other, um, you take a lot of um, effort to to pseudonymize that data set to the point where actually it's really, really hard to re-identify, which is kind of the point, it protects privacy. But it means you're in a position where patients go, how are you using data for research? What research? We don't know. Um, it makes it very hard to track it. And actually, from the conversations that I've had with our, our PPI group, with uh, other patients over the years, 
people are actually generally quite happy for their information to be used for research. Not are everyone they? does. Yeah, not everyone does. And you know, that's apparent for that's why we have a national data opt-out, uh, for people to opt out of their data being used for, for research and planning. But what I think people want to understand is what research is mm -hmm. being used for. They want to understand and contribute to that. And and data can be a part of that. You know, it doesn't have to be them having giving blood samples, actually kind of participating in that. Um, what we've seen more recently as well are um, concepts around kind of consent to contact. So hospitals build actively building up rather than kind of relying on a, a, an implicit consent or, you know, um, relying on patients having not opted out of this. Actually get patients to opt in and say... So I have a question yeah. um, around all of this. Why was it so easy to recruit so many um, participants for the COVID trials, but think... not for any others? What's the difference? I think COVID has such a high profile as a disease area. And I'm going to be really cynical and say COVID affected everybody. Um, but it also affected people who are particularly vulnerable. And I think as a society, we often tend to want to, if someone's really vulnerable, we want to help them. And I don't know a single person who did not have a relative affected in the pandemic in some sort of way. Um, I was working in care homes at the time. So, and we, they, they were hammered. Um, so it was such an important thing that we could contribute to that. But I think because of the high profile of it, it made people, it's almost kind of got like a blitz spirit to it. People wanted to be involved. It was a kind of almost patriotic sense of it. I think we kind of got to bring that back to um, clinical trials. We shouldn't coerce people into this. This shouldn't be a kind of guilt trip thing. This should be a kind of like, we want to contribute because personally I think that's that's part of my my personal ethical framework my personal philosophy is I want to contribute to make the world a better place this is a way in which I can do that um, but that's got to go hand in hand with the transparency and other technologies we've got to do this so coming back to secure data environments are a really good way of doing that. I'm really glad you brought up the secure data environments um, okay so we've talked about all of the benefits of using yeah. patient data which is which is great, okay, yeah. it's used for service improvements, it's used for planning, it's used to understand the history um, and patient care, and it's used for potentially drug development. Yeah. So, um, so all of that's good. Um, how, do we, how do we stop it being used for bad? How do, and how do we stop the data from falling into the wrong hands for people that aren't going to use it in such a positive, powerful way? So we've got the technologies now, you know, and. Acrivia have been leading in this field in many ways of developing these environments which are secure. So these uh, have certain kind of what, what we call sometimes called gateways or airlocks where there are technical prohibitions to prevent people committing certain actions. So if you want to take a data set out of an environment, that's got to be approved by an administrator um, and setting up certain levels of um, the, of, of kind of uh, standards for data coming out. So if you want to take data out, that might be kind of statistical aggregated data for, you know, supporting a, a paper to be published. That's great. You want to take out a data set that says Simon Pillinger, he had his appendix taken out several years ago. No, you can't have that. Um, so it's about making sure that those environments exist, you can control it, and you can audit them nice and easily. Um, what you can also do with environments, with those environments, is provision them with all the analytic tools that data scientists and researchers want, um, whilst enabling to know what they're doing. Um, so it keeps it secure and it keeps it transparent. You're able to report on what's being done. Um, but the great thing about this is, if a patient comes and says, 
if you're if you've got you know the means to identify them easily and you can build that in that's part of privacy by design is they can say how's my data being used and we can say oh yeah simon um your data has been used to help with understanding you know um, I'll take the appendix route, you know, how quickly people are seen for append appendicitis, you know, what are the routes that people come in? Um, and we're using that, potentially having that transparency information to help make sure that people are seen faster, to reduce the chance of people kind of having an appendix burst or, or looking at, you know, how long people are waiting in relation to what's going on in other sites. So what is one NHS trust doing that another could do better or kind of replicate. So it's all about those things. You start to see those use cases and they're really powerful because they benefit patients. Um, pharma pharmaceutical industry, in fact, the health research industry, I don't know a single person there who doesn't want to help patients. Um, and maybe I'm being overly optimistic, um, but I've yet to meet anyone who doesn't want to help patients. That's at the core of it. Um, and that's as true, I think, for uh, people working in the R&D teams as it is for kind of people on the front line of the NHS and, and being married to a clinician I feel like I can say that um, people want to help people people want to um, reduce the suffering of, of individuals um, and they want to do that and while also upholding their rights they want to build privacy into that whole process so using SDEs and, and being able to do federated analysis so that we've got the technology now where you don't have to move data between environments you can use um, bits of technology called APIs to extract bits of information or kind of aggregate stuff without actually moving the data. You can interrogate it. So um, you can look at a national group of, of, of secure environments and you can ask a question. And you get like, you know, how many patients are there who are on X drug for Y condition, um, whether that's treatment-resistant depression or, you know, how many patients have there been uh, who have had um, postpartum hemorrhages if you're looking at maternity services and you know you start to look at those trends in a way which preserves patient confidentiality and I think this is at the heart of what I think innovation is um, innovation if you just scrap the rule book that's not innovation for me that's laziness innovation is about doing things inside the rules protecting people's rights but being so innovative you can do both I don't think it's an either and all you, you can do both um, that's one of the things I really like about Crivia actually is that we do we don't go oh we can do one or the other no no we'll do both because actually that's that's the right thing to do Simon thank you so much for joining me today it's been a pleasure actually to hear your insights and I hope that everybody else finds it very interesting today because for me the key thing that's come past that's come through our discussion is how important transparency is um, how important it is that actually we all try and treat clinical trials as though we did during COVID. You know, that horrendous time, innovation was created and there are some things that we can take from that and we can learn and move forward. Also, it's really good to know that all of my data and people knowing where I live and what I do is not being sold. Um, and that innovation is really the key to allowing all of that to happen. Absolutely.